Ladies and gentlemen, in the last few years, the American people have been asking, what can they do to improve American education? And today, I think we have some pretty good ideas. Our crusade for excellence in education. But let's not kid ourselves, we are not doing our children any favors by continuing to subsidize practices that don't work and failing to invest in practices that do. And we owe the children of America a good education, and today begins a new era, a new time in public education in our country. There is no child whose opportunity should be stunted because of failing schools. This is Ravi Gupta, and you're listening to The Regressives. This is a narrative podcast series from The Lost Debate that examines progressive policies, ideas, and leaders in practice. And I'm a veteran of progressive political campaigns, and I have a lot of belief in a lot of the things that we've stood for over the past few decades. It's been an animating part of my life. But I wanted to start this podcast and this podcast series because... There's a lot of flaws in the way that we're going about our business as progressives. And so we use this podcast almost as like an ombudsman for progressives to try to shine the light on any flaws that we have so we can hope to eliminate them. So whether you're progressive or not, though, you're going to find these conversations fascinating, particularly today's conversation. Now, if you came to this feed for the regular Lost Debate episodes, we're going to be right back with a regular episode Thursday. But especially if you're a regular listener to The Lost Debate, you often hear me talk about something I call education reform. And this is like a mystical term that really we haven't unpacked enough on this show. And so today I sit down with Rick Hess, who is the education policy director at the American Enterprise Institute. You know, he comes from a conservative world. I come from a liberal world. But we come together and we talk about this piece that he recently wrote that outlines the history of this term education reform, namely the you know many decades collaboration between Democrats and Republicans on issues of educational practice and policy that goes from the Reagan administration all the way through to the second term for Obama. And Rick talks all about well, like, what held that coalition together, what did we get accomplished, what were some of the flaws that led to its eventual demise as he sees it, and then most importantly, where do we go from here? And it's one of the blessings of working in education over the past few decades that I get to have common cause with people who may come from the other side of the aisle, to use a euphemism. And that's really the spirit of the conversation that I have with Rick Hess. You're going to love it. It is squarely within our wheelhouse of conversations from across the aisle with people who come from different political parties, but who have a lot in common. So I think you're going to love it. Let's jump right in. Well, Rick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, uh, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I loved this piece that you wrote for National Affairs, you and your colleague, Checker Finn, called The End of School Reform. And we wanted to have a conversation with you for our full audience at Lost Debate, because I think this offers such a great history of this movement that we call education reform. And so... Let's start there for, you know, people in our audience are probably vaguely familiar, some more familiar than others about what education reform is, or at least in maybe to you was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is this thing? What is education reform? It's, it's a great question. Uh, you know, a few years ago in this book, uh, Letters to Young Ed Reformer, I said, you know, ed reform is whatever's going on in education when you get on the bus. Um, and some, one way to think about it is we have been reforming schools in this country pretty much constantly uh, since its inception. Um, so what Checker and I are talking about in, in this case 
is really the wave of school reform that started with the launch of A Nation at Risk back in 1983, this big Reagan era. It was the year I was born, by the way. That was (laughs) There you go. Um, In purple language, it said, you know, that the state of American schools was if a foreign nation had done to us what our schools were doing to our kids, uh, it would have been calls for war. And this really launched a whole effort through the 1980s and 1990s, which had all kinds of knock-on effects. And that's kind of the era of school reform that I came of age in. Uh, So for me, in a lot of ways, that feels like school reform. But what's really important to remember, and we always need to push ourselves to, is that for other folks who get on the bus at different points in time, there's always a wave rising and a wave falling. And what feels like reform to us feels like ancient history or like, you know, (laughs) fake reform to somebody who came before or after. Well, let's rewind the clock a little bit before The Nation at Risk. So 1983, that was published. So right in the middle of the Reagan administration. So you talk about the fact that basically from you know Kennedy to Carter, there was a different kind of education reform, different kind of reforms. You want to just give us the quick bullets about what that entailed? Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing for folks to keep in mind is it's important to remember how recent, the idea of everybody graduating high school really is. You know, back in 1900, only one American in 10 finished high school. It wasn't until after World War II that most Americans were graduating high school. So it was in the kind of the 1950s, this this idea that schooling was something we all needed to finish started to become a norm. And in that era, the big challenge was access and just fundamental equity. So when you think about the Kennedy era, LBJ, the fights were really about desegregation, tackling Jim Crow, um, Eisenhower sending the National Guard into Little Rock, and then Kennedy and LBJ maintaining that effort. And then certainly the Elementary Secondary Schools Act under LBJ, in which you created the Title I program when Washington was going to send dollars out to nation to states and the nation's school districts. Um, particularly to try to make sure that you had a basic level of provision, even in the nation's poorest communities. So from, say, the Kennedy years through the Carter years, school reform was really mostly about spending more dollars, getting more funds out to the poor, to the poorest districts, and trying to combat egregious, explicit uh, racial segregation. And this is really the beginning of an aggressive federal role in education. So you write a, a, something that might be shocking to a lot of our listeners that the Department of Education wasn't even created until 1979. So what I think for a lot of people, it's hard to imagine the world without the Department of Education. What did things look like before Department of Education? Like what, what does 1978 look like? What's the federal role in education? Because you know, 1978, you're still seeing a lot of these interventions that you're talking about, but there's no Department of Education. Yeah. And in some ways, it's funny, it's not that different. Um, even today, outside of all the, the, the $200 billion in COVID funds that got spent, um, Washington uh, in a typical year only accounts for about 10% of K-12 spending in this country. Frequently, even today, the Department of Ed gets described as a higher ed, higher ed lending facility with a small policy shop attached. <laughs> so in 1978, the bulk of what we think about as the education department still existed at this thing called HEW, Health, Education, and Welfare. 
So you had federal laws relating to provision for children with special needs. You had programs uh, for a particular population, say indigenous kids. You had federal efforts to combat de jure segregation. And all of that was parked over at this HEW. What had happened was on the campaign trail in 1976, when Carter ran as an underdog, trying to uh, woo the teacher unions, particularly the National Education Association, he promised that he would create a federal department of education at the NEA uh, if he won, because he had a lot of support at the Democratic Convention um, that was NEA delegates. And that was a promise he finally delivered on in 79. Hmm. I'm curious about this, because if if I'm remembering my reading correctly, I think Stephen Brill outlined this pretty well in Class Warfare, the teachers union itself doesn't become powerful until when? What, like the, the 70, what, when is when is Shanker rising up? Correct me on this history, right? So the 70s is really when they're, they're ascendant at this point. So this is like coming at the same time. Yeah. So there's two major teacher unions. There's the NEA, which is the really big one, and the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, which is somewhat smaller. That was Shanker. That's Randy Weingarten today. But they organized the big cities. So the AFT is New York City. It's Chicago. So they're frequently in the headlines. NEA is a lot of smaller communities across the land. I see. Uh, and NEA started as a professional association. So it didn't really become a union like we think of unions until the late 70s, 80s. AFT started with Shanker was running the UFT in New York City, and that was in the late 60s. Uh, Oceanville, Brownsville, these New York City fights, and the AFT really became um, a militant uh, a militant force. So you had this huge wave of teacher strikes um, led by the AFT that started in the mid to late 70s, and then they largely died out. And then you didn't really have a significant number of teacher strikes until the last five years. Um, some of the stuff that you saw in, say, a red for ed in places like West Virginia and Oklahoma in the run up to COVID. Well, OK, so then let's let's start to pick up in the 80s. Right. So you have Reagan. And I think as you write about the 80s, not a lot's happening in Washington. But what starts happening in the late 80s, early 90s are that governors are starting to you know, come together and in many ways, bridge a divide that was happening in the conversation about race and policy in this country. And it's kind of weird to think about now. I mean, this was the, when I was a kid, like the first two presidential races that I remember were 88 and then 92 for sure. And what you outline is that there is a series of governors, Bill Clinton in Arkansas, Lamar Alexander in Tennessee, Jim Hunt in North Carolina, Richard Riley, South Carolina, Bob Graham in Florida. Interesting enough that you had Republicans and Democrats throughout the South being governor. You see it less likely now. And that George H.W. Bush convenes this Charlottesville summit. Clinton goes to this. They outline an ambitious agenda by the end of the century, which would be by 2000, called Goals 2000. Less important what they actually outlined there than the fact that a lot of the people coming out of that summit wound up pushing the beginnings of what we call education reform now. So in the 90s, you see things like the ascendance of charter schools, which I think what the first charter school is 91 or something in Minnesota, is that something like that? Mm -hmm. And then it you know grows within 20 years to start taking on a significant share of students. You start to see, so that's, you outline it as like two planks to education reform. One is the school choice agenda, charters and at least in the beginning, to a lesser extent, vouchers and ESAs, which we'll come back to, which now I would say, watch out, like major, major issue now. 
And then you have all this other stuff. What, what's the other stuff? Choice and what? And uh, standards, accountability, um, what we call today testing, which, you know, in the aftermath of No Child Left Behind and kind of the Common Core fight, really um, divisive, toxic stuff. But back then, everybody was in favor of it. Uh, and the way, you know, and, and you just set it up real nice. One way for folks who, for whom this feels like ancient history to think about it is Reagan ran in 1980. He promised to abolish this Department of Ed that Carter had started. Reagan ran talking about vouchers, particularly, um, as, you know, as part of an appeal to kind of the FDR urban Catholics. And it was part of a larger, you know, Reagan's larger push to get government back out of your lives. In 83, you get this report, Nation at Risk which the White House kind of likes. And it remind me, Moynihan is attached to this somehow, a Democratic senator from New York, right? Uh, or he, 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 not not explicitly to that, but Moynihan is kind of a, uh, um, a spirit figure around all of this. These are issues Moynihan had talked about a lot uh, when he was part of the LBJ White House and then in the 70s. Bill Bennett was Secretary of Education shortly after, not, not during Nation of Risk, but Bill Bennett winds up becoming Secretary of Education 84, 85. And for listeners, Bill Bennett becomes a big culture war figure in politics if you're not paying attention. So that's why he brings up Bill Bennett. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. at the time, but at the time he was really, he was a guy who was really talking about the child, you know, the need to do better, the need to set. Nation at Risk talked about how mostly high schoolers weren't doing enough hard work, how graduation expectations were too low. So what happened was governors on the right and left saw real opportunity here. The 80s was the first time that education started to get talked about as a national issue. Historically, it hadn't been in the top 20 issues when you would poll people about what are they concerned about nationally. But in the 80s, you start to talk about Japan Inc., you start to talk about the the, the technological economy, and the idea that education really matters for employment and for economic prosperity becomes just assumed in a way that was not the case in the 60s or 70s when there were a lot more factory jobs. So you mentioned in the Southern governors, why Southern governors? Because it's in the South that there was a huge concern that jobs were going to be wiped out by changes in technology. So whether you were Bill Clinton or Lamar Alexander, this was a way to govern towards the middle. It was a way to show if you were a Democrat, that you were serious about investment rather than giveaways, about encouraging people to work hard and play by the rules, Clinton's 92 slogan. If you were a Republican, so when George H.W. Bush promises in 88, I'm going to be the education president, uh, it's a way, it's part of this appeal, this kinder, gentler conservative that, look, we're going to walk the walk. It's not just if you make it, you make it. We want to make sure that every American has a chance to make it. So how, how do you do that? Charter schooling is kind of the innovative piece of this, that we're going to open up new systems. But the real appeal was accountability. If you're a Democrat, we're going to make sure that every kid is going to a school where they're going to learn to read and write and do math, and we're going to give them the resources and make sure teachers are qualified and skilled. And if I'm a Republican, I'm going to hold these public schools accountable and make sure that they're serving all the kids and not let them leave anybody behind. Yeah. It's almost like equality of opportunity was the the galvanizing force there. And obviously, if somebody's cynical, you could be like, well, this was just scratching political itches for people. But those two, both could be true, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, the, the political itch was absolutely there. I mean, this was an era when if you're a Republican, you tried to win by convincing those kind of those NASCAR dads, those soccer moms, 
that, you know, that you weren't callous. Yeah, the compassionate conservative that Bush runs on in 2000, right? And if you're and if you're Clinton in 92 or Obama in 08, it's showing that you're, you know, a thoughtful progressive. You're not Mondale, you're not Dukakis. You're worried about making sure that people work hard and, you know, and so the equality of opportunity really resonates because for Republicans, it's trying to show that they were sincere about equality. And for Democrats, it was showing that they were serious about opportunity rather than results. Right. And then, and that Democrats were focused on making government work, right? Because you have these big debates around the size of government, which continue to this day. And I think what you saw from Democrats was, all right, we're going to, we're going to put our back into trying to, you know, more technocratic government where people who are, you know, like criticized people like me would say neoliberal technocratic government where it was like Blairite and, and Clintonite, uh, you know, and eventually Obamaite, you know, language around government. Yeah. yeah I mean, there was a famous uh, hearing. So Title I got created in 65 in the original elementary and secondary ed act. And for people who are not totally familiar about the funding streams, just explain what title one is for people. So title, so about, um, about 90% of money to schools comes from states and localities, school, local districts, about 10% comes from Washington. A big chunk of that is what's called title one. These are federal dollars to support schools that are educating big numbers of low income kids. So this was, these were dollars that were supposed to help schools serving low income kids. Bobby Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy's younger brother, who had been attorney general and was in 68, um, a senator from New York, there's a famous hearing when he asks the guy who's commissioner of education, not yet a secretary of education, it's a 68, so 10 years till there's a department of ed, but the guy who was commissioner of education, Francis Keppel, is testifying before the Senate, and Bobby Kennedy asks, how do we know that these dollars we're sending out are actually going to make any difference for the kids are supposed to help? In fact, how do we know that states aren't just pocketing these dollars and then using them to give tax cuts? And what Keppel basically tells Kennedy is, yeah, that's a good question. We don't. And so one way to think about kind of why Democrats liked testing and accountability in the 90s, why Bill Clinton embraced it, why Ted Kennedy embraced it, was they saw it as a chance to ensure that schools weren't just turning a blind eye towards low-income kids or marginalized kids or Black and Latino kids, but they saw testing and accountability as a way to make sure that schools were held accountable for how they were serving all these different populations that could otherwise get lost. Hmm. So it's almost like the hook to get into people to to get the kind of regulation that you want, which makes sense. And on the Republican yeah. side, it was that they were skeptical of big bureaucracies and so you saw, again, that, that this equality of opportunity, the right and left, especially in that era, both saw testing and accountability as a place where it was really easy to find common ground. Right. So this plays out. You have from Clinton to Bush's No Child Left Behind to Obama's Race to the Top, you have signature pieces of legislation that build on one another, both on the charter school front and on the other set of you know testing, accountability, standards-based education, et cetera, where it goes from incentivizing states to test their kids and collect general data to no child left behind, which asks more of states in terms of subgroups. So like our you know, black and brown kids and special education kids and economically disadvantaged kids performing well, et cetera, to all the way to where I enter the picture. So I, I launched my first school, Nashville Prep, in 2018. 
11 and I get down to Nashville in 2010, which is really this is as race to the top has passed, which is an Obama era program that, among other things, was a competitive grant program to states. Tennessee, which is where I started my first school, won a race to the top grant. Basically, he dangled what is a relatively small amount of money in the grand scheme of things to get states to, you know, push for teacher evaluation programs, change their state standards to align with Common Core and expand uh, charter schools, all, all things that Tennessee attempted to do. And Tennessee is really the test case for all of this, right? Because Tennessee, Lamar Alexander was was governor. They have a lot of great things going on there in terms of the infrastructure, including value added, which is a whole thing we don't need to talk about, but a really interesting series of data they've been collecting over the years about how students grow from year to year, which is very helpful. But I get there as they're winning this grant, and it's like the heyday of reform. Tennessee wins, race to the top. Waiting for Superman is this movie that's, you know, documentary. The lottery is there. And we're doing screenings in Nashville. National figures are coming to Nashville. Charter school leaders are opening up their charters in Nashville. We're getting a lot of attention. And that's when I start my first school. And within, I would say, four years to five years, so by 2013, 2014, the climate had completely shifted to the point where especially on the left, there were issues on the right, especially as it related to Common Core. Like they they basically stamped that like as a combination of government overreach and just Obama, like just, just didn't like Obama and anything attached to him was bad. Suburban parents who were left leaning also hated Common Core. Uh, they obviously also hated charters. Like there was always skepticism, I think, of charters on the left, although you always had people like Obama who were pro-charter. Clinton was originally pro-charter. Hillary, I think less so, although she's personally told me that she's pro-charter, but I don't know if that's accurate at this point. Well, we don't need to go into that. But I lived it. Like these people, I'm a Democrat. I've been working in progressive politics. They would have thrown me in jail if they could. So explain <laughs> to our audience what happened here, Rick. Like, I, I, like I, I get down there thinking, hey, I'm like, you know, I have a fancy Ivy League law degree and I'm like, I want to work for kids in the South. I leave my home. I'm like, you know, I'm expecting to get a purple heart for the work I'm doing down there. And they were literally harassing me from about three years in. Uh, and to the point where I left the work in 2016 when uh, Trump won. So, like, what happened here? Like, explain this to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's, so one is that folks are like, well, it seems complicated. Yeah, it totally is complicated. So, right. you know, what Chuck and I try to do is as best we can tease us apart a little bit. Look, one thing that happened, I think, was... You know, you mentioned before that politicians, you know, public officials and politicians do stuff because they're politically useful. Well, partly the attitude of the country has changed over 40 years. Right. And so what it made sense for mayors and governors to do in 1992 starts to look different 20, 30 years later. And that's a reality that folks in your shoes were just were inhabiting. Second thing is that there were a bunch of decisions made about accountability, about choice, about reform in those Clinton, Bush, and Obama years that made sense at the time that I think it's easy to second guess after the fact. The biggest one was in order to make, but again, in order to keep that coalition together, uh, that equality of opportunity coalition, uh, Democrats said, we really want to focus on the worst served kids. And if it's not about low income kids, you know, minority kids in the urban core, we're, it's not a priority. They said that. 
And Republicans said, well, okay, and that way we don't have to be as disruptive and we don't. The problem with that compromise was it wound up feeling that school reform was Medicaid rather than Medicare. Hmm. Um, It was something that was about serving the least influential, most marginalized folks. It was something that suburbanites and middle class families tolerated, but that they certainly didn't feel any stake in. It wasn't for their benefit. And so what we saw with testing was as testing is that No Child Left Behind kicked in over time. By two, by the Obama years, 80% of American schools were being identified as failing under No Child Left Behind testing. This was frustrating to parents. It would annoy teachers. If you believed that your school was failing, maybe that was important, but 75% of parents thought their kid's school deserved an A or a B. Right. So their <laughs> yeah. kid's school was now being right. called up in this national accountability system that they didn't think made any sense. Uh, They were hearing about disruption and annoyance. It was having an effect on property values. And it was no longer do the right thing for the low-income kids in the urban core. It won't affect you. Now this was having a real effect on them. And so people started to get frustrated. And then Common Core came in on top of that. And it felt now that No Child Left Behind, in their mind, was an invitation to a bunch of political figures in Washington to meddle with what kids learn in reading and math, to start doing away with fiction, to start introducing this goofy new math. And it felt like a whole bunch of people were actually making their schools worse in the name of social justice. And that created enormous backlash, especially on the right, but also frustration on the left. Similar story of school choice, I'd argue. That school choice, in order to make it palatable, was sold as something that was really about creating a lifeboat for low-income kids trapped in terrible schools, but that also meant there was no constituency for it. Mm. So when you when school when charter schooling started to spread, when you had the famous Massachusetts charter school referendum about 2015, you know when Obama started to get squeezed by the two wings of his coalition, you didn't find a lot of folks uh, in the suburbs or middle class who said, "Oh yeah, we really want charter schools." They're for us. Yeah. And let me pause you on that because it's interesting because I wrote about this uh, just yesterday because it's by the sheer numbers, what you're describing is actually a majority of Democrats, depending on how you look at the polling, but the base, right? Why is Joe Biden president? Because of black Democrats. Why is Eric Adams mayor of New York City? You start to look down this list and you're like, well, the people who purport to run the party and are the loudest are often the white progressives, the blue check marks on Twitter, the activists, the donor base, and all that. They hate charter schools now. Now they've mm-hmm. shifted over the years, but they 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 went down in the Trump years. They're slightly ticking back up, depending on how you read the data now, in part because of the pandemic and in part because of the shift in the way that we talk about these things. And just also because I think the, the discussion of charters has cooled down, I think, quite a bit lately. But Black and brown parents generally support these things, sure. and they are the base of the Democratic Party, yet they aren't really being heard, right? So, like, I just want to make that point as yeah. a caveat to what you're saying is, like, they they aren't the most politically powerful when it comes to the discussions happening, but at the ballot box, paradoxically, they are. But they don't vote on charter school issues. They don't tend to, you know? That's right. They, they, they don't tend yeah. to vote on charters. And also, it's the case that the, the black and brown parents um, in the Democratic coalition who embrace school choice tend to want school choice programs that are going to serve their kids, which is right. how any normal parent would think about this. Unfortunately, in terms of coalitional politics, those are the programs that don't do anything for 
suburban parents, middle-class parents, or Republican parents. Right. So you wind up with a pretty narrow coalition and they get shouted. So one of the things that you've seen start to emerge, I think, in the last three, four years, which has changed the dynamic, is you started to see these statewide education savings accounts programs and backlit by the politics of COVID. When you get all these suburban and Republican parents who are now angry about school closures or distrustful in values, they say, hey, this actually starts to make sense to me. And that's a proposal that still serves those black and brown Democrats. So what's happening is you're starting to see this weird transpartisan coalition that you used to talk about in theory. But what it really was, was Republicans voting, not in a way that benefited their constituents, because they thought it was the right thing to do. And now what's changing about these politics is you see Republicans who are voting for this in a way that actually works with their constituents. And I I think one of the things that this points to is what we've grown accustomed to is the politics of, say, school choice is very likely going to look quite different four or five years from now than what we've been used to. Okay, let's come back to the education savings account point because I want to I want to I want to put a pin in that because I think that explains there are there are a bunch of things so if we're if we're charting what's happening on the right and the left during this period of time you have them both being against common core for similar reasons for certain ways but in different reasons other ways so you got that going on school choice the sort of grass tops left hates it uh the sort of white progressives hate it the right is kind of agnostic to it like free market, right, you know, conservatives and, and members of the state legislatures, I can attend test to support it. But there was this tacit agreement. This was true in Tennessee and it's true in Mississippi, where we were passing these laws in Tennessee and Mississippi, and we had favorable state legislators, but there was a tacit agreement that the schools were urban and they didn't affect their school systems because they didn't want, because like, if you're in a rural area, you got one school and you know, and they're kind of hypocrites for this. I don't know what else to say. They're like, I have all sorts of thoughts about the school funding part of charter schools and the way that debate is going down. What was interesting is that a lot of these conservatives sidestepped it. And they were like, they actually believed that that charters were defunding their schools and they didn't want them where they were. Um, And although I believe in the schools and I have very strong feelings about the school funding debate, that was an interesting agreement that was going on. So, and that is very relevant to this ESA debate, the educational savings account debate. So let's put a pin in that for a second. On the left, you write about, and I'm sure this is probably the most controversial part of what you wrote. And when I was talking to Chris Stewart about this the other day on another one of our podcasts, this was the part that you could imagine he had the most thoughts about, is you talk about something I saw firsthand, which was a lot of the same people, literally, that were part of the education reform coalition, and certainly the same people who supported Obama, were uh, embracing the language of racial justice and what it meant to be for racial justice was different by you know the end of the Trump administration than it was, say, by the beginning of the Obama administration. So what what are the, the from your reading what what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the things that talked one of the things that happened is American politics started to shift. So you got this polarization, which um, a whole bunch of folks who had done well at foundations or advocacy by playing to that equality of opportunity coalition suddenly found, um, it was like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Uh, The ground was splitting beneath their feet and they had to pick a side. So that was part of it. Um, Another part was just, there was real frustration. Um, You know, I I remember talking to so many of these folks that you just mentioned, you know, folks who wound up working for President Obama or working, you know, with these major foundations. 
And in 2000 or 2002, they were so sure that they knew the way. They were going to bring their MBA expertise to education. And we were going to like, you know, uh, Silicon Valley, our way to excellence. And they were really disenchanted by the end of Race to the Top, by the fights over Common Core. Uh, there was really a sense that we hadn't moved the needle in the way they'd hoped. And I think it's a human nature to say, well, it wasn't me. What was it? <laughs> and I think, you know, uh, with the death of Michael Brown in 2014 and the emergence of Black Lives Matter, it was both kind of very intuitive for many of these folks and pragmatically easy to say, well, we didn't fail. The problem is we didn't realize how racist America was, how fundamentally broken America is. The problem's not us. It wasn't our ideas. It was these Americans and America. And if you do that, then you get to go back to all the funders and say, we need more money to combat racism. We don't have to say any mea culpas because our ideas weren't wrong. We just thought too highly of the Americans we were trying to help. <laughs> and they got to be part of the good guys because especially for you know 90, 90%, 95% in my experience of education world leans left. And if everybody you know and all the funders and the major media and the advocates are all part of the same kind of social justice movement, this lets you say that I am going to be an avatar and a member in good standing of that movement. And so I think what happened was there was a, over a couple of year period, there was a trade of wonkery for racialism and that that very much kind of shaped and backlit what happened that, that accelerated during the Trump years. And then that kind of helped explain how so many in K-12 and higher ed uh, responded to the killing of George Floyd in 2020. Yeah, I find this so fascinating because, and I'm sure this is the most controversial part of your piece where you probably heard from the most people on it. Here was my experience during this period of time. I come into the reform movement and I have my own set of issues with it by the end where I felt like it turned into its own bureaucracy. <laughs> right. Which is like, I don't know where the constituency for this position is, but I'm sure you're one of them. John White. I mean, there are a few of us out there who believe this stuff where they were sending people down and I won't name the organization, but it's probably obvious to people listening that like supports the growth of charter schools. And they would send somebody down to Tennessee to support us who had never run a school, never done politics, <laughs> was drawing salary that was higher than any of us and had no idea what the hell she was talking about. And was meddling in all the business of our schools. And then you start to see another organization and another organization prop up and another one, another one, another one. All this money going to all this stuff. And from what I understand, in the era of all these COVID dollars, this has grown. And so by the end of it, I was just pissed off at reform for reasons <laughs> that nobody seemed to care about other than me. Where I'm like, these people are useless. I don't mean to be mean. Like they're sending me people who don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, the person I just mentioned still does that job. Uh, and so... And, you know, this will get me in trouble, but like it, 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 I don't know what else to say. They were sending these people down there and then they were also running these organizations who truly didn't know anything about how to run schools. And so, uh, and they would, they would couch their sort of their work in like a McKinsey-esque sort of uh, bromide type language that to me didn't make sense. And to a lot of us who were running schools, it was, it was almost insulting. And so by the end of it, that was what I was like responding to. And that was happening alongside a shift in Teach for America and a shift in some of these other organizations that were 
a whole different set of problematic. And we had a whole special episode of the Citizen Stewart podcast about this where I was, you know, people can go back and listen to that, where I just talk about how Teach for America basically abandoned a focus on, on student achievement in favor of an activism that was hollow. Like I'm all for activism. I've, I've trained thousands of progressive operatives over the years who've helped elect candidates far to the left to myself. I have no problem with activism. I support it, but it was a hollow activism and I won't go into, I've, I've explained at length that. So I had that going on and that was two things that I wouldn't say those are the reasons why I left, but those were my main gripes. Fast forward and the bureaucracy's still there, right? A lot of the same people are still doing it. The funders, you know, I often joke that like if we, if we read some of these books by these people, Bezos, Reed, all these guys who I think are amazing, and a lot of them are involved in ed reform. If, if we applied their principles to ed reform, nobody would be in a job, right? <laughs> like if we, if we took the Netflix hiring principles and we applied it to education reform and like had people justify their jobs every year, the principals would be in their jobs. A lot of the teachers would be in their jobs, but all these sport organizations, uh, a lot of them would be out of a job. Uh, so that's still going on. That hasn't changed. But the other thing you're talking about, which is those those sort of ideas, the sort of postmodern gobbledygook that was you know being trafficked back then, has gotten way way worse. People have ex not only abandoned the ideas that we stood for back then; some of them needed to be challenged, right? And so it's this weird effect of they're attacking the bureaucracy that I hate in many ways. But they're not attacking it for the right reasons. <laughs> they're saying, you know what I'm saying? So that's yeah. what I, I don't know if you've had this experience. This I love that. I mean, I love this. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, there, there's a reality. You know, this is a little bit of what I talked about at the beginning. You know, reform is wherever you get on the bus. Right. It's like, you know, so many of these organizations that you just mentioned that, that, that we think of as like, you know, if you're in them, they're new, they're revolutionary, they're leading change. They're the new bureaucracy. Yes. Um, what happened was a whole bunch 100%. of bureaucratic organizations that were built and supported those governors in the 80s and 90s have faded away and, you know, can no longer get funding. And so these organizations that were once lean and mean and mission driven uh, are now filled with comfortable kind of self-satisfied, smug education reformers who run around and tell everybody else what to do. And, you know, if you think in terms of the division between talkers and doers, a movement where the Don Chalvies and these kind of talker doers, the people who were leading were at the people who were leading were also doing it. Right. At the early edge of this, you now have this professional cast of people who sit around and try to give orders. And when their orders don't go, they don't take ownership. They blame implementation problems. But maybe the problem is that they're ensconced in a new set of bureaucracies which just aren't up to the test. But I think like what you name is this sense of like this different theory of race. There was almost this pivot point where I joined the Obama campaign because I believed in his theory of race in this country. And it's partially because I'm half white. I talked about, I've talked about this on a number of our podcasts before that his sort of generosity of spirit, you know, embodied in that Philadelphia speech where he talked about his grandmother and Reverend Wright is the closest approximation to the way I think about race. That came head on with ta Coates' theories at the end of the Obama administration, the second term, where they're explicitly having a debate about two competing theories in many ways. They're not competing in every way, but they're competing. And they, I think Coates' theory really wins out for a while, right? And that was main, and that dovetails with the rather unfortunate Trump administration where I have this, <laughs> I have this twin, that's what got me back into politics. And to me, I, I had this twin experience of both 
being totally appalled by Trump and not being with the new conversation around race by and large. Like there are certain parts of it that I believe, like for instance, that there is institutionalized racism in this country. I believe, and I actually think that was part of my work in the South, that I, I, could, I believe that there is institutional racism, but not that we should essentialize human beings and say, you are white, therefore you are racist. The sort of D'Angelo-esque white fragility arguments that to me were the opposite of what we ran on for Obama. Right. And so I think you write basically that's your part of your point was like that kind of wins out on the left. The right is sort of, you know, succumbs to Trumpianism, which is kind of like, in my opinion, almost like a nihilistic movement where there isn't really an ideology, uh, but more of a mm -hmm. cult of personality. And that kills choice in many ways on the left. Like it, when when Trump, even though he probably doesn't know what school choice really is, says he's pro school choice, it makes it nearly impossible to support it on the left. And so we emerge from that now, where? Where are we? <laughs> you tell me. Yeah, no, no, I think that's well said. And, you know, in some sense, I mean, I'd argue that, well, you know, part, part of the problem is you've got these twin nihilism. So, you know, Kip in 2020 said that we're gonna abandon works hard, be nice, yeah. uh, because it is a legacy of white supremacy culture. Now, I got to tell you, I mean, I've spent a lot of time working with folks from around the world and traveling to different countries. I've never met educators in any country who don't believe in working hard, being nice, right? whatever their ethnic or cultural kind of context. So what happened was, I think this, this talk of white supremacy culture and institutional racism and anti-racism became on the left a really lazy and unreflective way to virtue signal. And I think the way you just kind of talked about how do we think about this, the Obama-esque kind of, the Coates-esque kind of thing, like the, there's obviously real and important issues here. You want to know, I have a story about how lazy that truly is. So June 2020, everything's going on in this country. At this point, I'm running Arena, which is a progressive organization that trains progressive candidates. I'm, I'm in the middle of bridging across all these divides. I've got Obama people, Bernie people, never Trumpers, all in the same coalition, and we're holding it together. All the Floyd stuff happens and you have the black squares and all that on, on Instagram and, and all these calls for change. In the middle of that, I launch an organization called Second Chance Studios, which supports the um, people coming out of the prison system to do digital media. And I launch it with a friend of mine named Cos Marte, who himself was in the prison system and became an entrepreneur, another guy named Alfred Johnson. While that is going on, I have friends who are castigating me for not going out and joining the physical protests. And what I said to them then, which I did not have the courage to say like publicly because it was an unforgiving environment, was when I look at these protests, I don't like what I'm seeing on my corner. I'm living in lower Manhattan at that point where I have literally people I know coming over from Williamsburg who are privileged people in many respects coming over and throwing bricks through the window of a bodega that's owned by an immigrant. And I said to them, that's not social justice to me. But they're like throwing up the black squares, they're getting the likes, and they're they're you know calling out this, they're calling out that. And some of it leads to some good change. Some of it I think was totally hollow, hollow as you talk about. What's interesting to me, and I remember the names, and I know I, I keep a list here. A lot of these organizations, a lot of these people, I asked them a year later, hey, you know, we're launching now officially Second Chance Studios. Rick, you'd be surprised, like, 
95% of the people with the black check marks, all that, they're not engaging anything meaningful at this point a year later. They're not donating to organizations like Second Chance Studios, which are actually doing things to help people to help decarcerate and all that. They're not even showing up to the protests anymore, you know? So even like, I though I disagree with some of the ways that those protests protesters were behaving, I would have respected them more if they put their back into it and continued doing it. You know what I'm saying? But like so many of them weren't even committed to the ideas that they were pushing. And so to me, it, that, that encapsulates a lot of this language, I think, around education reform, where there is versions of this happening in education reform, where I was being yeah. like a lot of these like people coming out of organizations like Teach for America. I think, unfortunately, some of this has happened to Pahara and some of these other organizations that I have a lot of respect for over the years. Like there was like the subtle bullying going on. Mm-hmm. But then there wasn't any mains like there wasn't any staying power to these ideas. Like, what do we have? Like years later for these no, ideas, no, I think that, you know? and I think you see the same thing on the right. Certainly, I mean, you certainly saw it like the election denialism, right? There's a theatricality around it. You, you do it, of course. You say these things. Other then- than I do want to say one thing, and you do talk about this in your piece. We have seen a really important conversation around representation in the ranks of leadership that I think mm-hmm. is long overdue. I think you talk about Howard Fuller in the piece. That is true, but I don't think that is mutually exclusive with the things that we're saying. Because no, no. Fuller is a good example, because Fuller believes in all the things we're talking about, from what I understand, not everything, but he believes in a lot of what we're saying around the focus on results for mm-hmm. kids, et cetera, but also probably passionately believes, from what I understand, I'm not close with him, you may be, yeah. like in the representation point, which was long overdue. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, in Howard, I mean, Howard, I mean, so you ask kind of where are we and where do we go? And I think Howard Fuller is actually in some ways a wonderful example of it. I mean, Howard is a man who has stood for his principles for 30 years. He became superintendent of Milwaukee Public Schools after fighting to create the voucher program in Wisconsin in 90 because somebody needed to lead the response. Uh, he's been asked twice to be secretary of education for the U.S. He passed both times because it wasn't a president that he was going to serve. But at the same time, he is somebody who has always been willing to talk across difference. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I did a book a year or two ago with a, a guy named Pedro Nogueira, who's dean of the School of Education at USC, uh, enormously influential ed school thinker. And we disagree on a lot of these issues. So we wrote this book, A Search for Common Ground. It wound up being during COVID. We had started it shortly before. And one of the things that struck me, and I think it's really relevant to where we're going to be going over the next, over the rest of this decade and going forward, is when Pedro and I actually got a chance not to like argue about things on cable news or on social media, but we were trading back and forth. You know, we disagreed. We didn't convince each other on any points. We talking whether it was SEL or tech or teacher pay or something. But our differences in a lot of these things were more, much more manageable than you might have expected from the headlines, that our differences are often blown up in the public eye when we're talking. And I think that's where we are, it, you, know, on, on, uh, you know, particularly on the stuff that's in the headlines right now, the critical race theory, the race. Look, the reason that the, uh, if you read the prefatory materials, for instance, to the College Board's uh, framework guide for the AP African American History, it said the reason that there's not a lot in here on slavery or the civil rights movement is when we were looking around, these are the two most commonly taught historical developments in American schooling today. So we don't need to focus on those. Nobody disagrees with that. If you go to Florida and look at the Stop Woke Act, or you hear what Ned Lamont saying in Connecticut about the need to make sure we're teaching black history, that's not what we're disagreeing about. What we're disagreeing about are these higher ed overlays 
how much attention should be given to reparations or queer or queer theory or critical race theory. And we're going to argue about these. But honestly, for the vast majority of real families and parents, I think that stuff's at the margins. When we're talking about school choice, you now have these universalist proposals, education savings accounts, vouchers that are statewide, um, that for Republicans who have grown increasingly frustrated with their public schools due either to closure or what feels like union influence or distrust around value stuff, these things resonate in a practical way that wasn't true five years ago. And on the Democratic side, uh, the folks who actually turn out and make the difference in elections for Democrats, Black and Latino working class families, you have 70% uh, support for this kind of school choice stuff. When you start to talk about, in practical terms, a lot of these issues that turn into blood feuds, uh, if you look at them online or in the media, I actually think you get 70, 75% of voters are aligned. And when you find this kind of disparity, this kind of misalignment between what most parents and communities want and the way this stuff is playing out in the civic discourse, I think that's what happens is eventually the talking heads get pulled into alignment with what voters are actually going to show up for. I think we saw this in the late 80s and early 90s when governors of both parties wound up getting pulled along by what was working. I think we saw this in the Bush-Obama era. And I think what's going to happen is as much fun as some of the talking heads have kind of throwing angry tweets back and forth is at the center of gravity of what parents actually want on choice, on values, on uh, you know gender instruction is going to wind up pulling the center of gravity in the ed reform conversation. Well, and so what is that? Because you know, there's a lot that you just said that I think you and I could have like a long conversation with, or if we brought in like you know, we've got we've got such like diverse views within even the lost debate community. I mean, we've got Doug Lamov. On I do one podcast with him, and then I do another podcast with Chris Stewart, right? And I think the two of them would have very, very different reactions to some of the stuff that you just said, and and we would be here for another hour if I went there. So I think like we, <laughs> I leave that there, but but I yeah. think your 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 larger point to me, which is there's something going on where the sheer percentage of of the the conversation around education is on a very narrow sliver right now nationally of what parents really care about. And this is why this ESA conversation to me is so fascinating, the educational savings accounts. Because I was looking at polling on this yesterday. And these are often commissioned by pro-school choice organizations, but often in partnership with reputable polling services. So it's hard to say like heads or tails with them, but they're showing that majority Democrats support educational savings accounts right now. Now let's wait and see until the people do what they do with these types of issues and 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 it becomes more political than they are right now in a lot of places. Because in a lot of places, it's not a reality yet. It's like a, in a, it's a debate in a dozen plus states maybe right now. It's not hitting New York, California, et cetera, the ways it was. Yeah, and it's not going, right? And it's not, not going to move there. And one of the interesting things, of course, is, you know, it's the old, uh, it is hard to eliminate a program phenomena. Yeah. You know, even in, even in blue communities, uh, you know, even under Tony Evers in Wisconsin, it's just really hard to start taking away programs once right. folks are benefiting from them. And so, you know, as these ESAs get adopted, they're generally, you know, it's going to be incredibly hard even for opponents to really rein them back. The fights will be more about regulation. Look, one way to think about for folks who, you know, are going to have different reactions to what I just said, um, I think rather than 
try to litigate the whole thing. The useful way to think about it is just think in terms of specific questions. If you get folks on the different sides of these debates up there, and if we start cutting through the bombast on cable news or on social media, and you, you know, and we're saying to the folks, you know, the representatives left and right, do you really want to come out against increased parental choice? Generally speaking, there's a lot of discomfort with anybody yeah. kind of, and that tells you a lot, I think, about where the center of gravity is going to move. The unions obviously will. They will explain to you how this is bleeding the system of resources. You know, the woke folks in New York City and L.A. are going to be comfortable arguing, which is why you're not going to see ESAs in some of these, you know, deep blue places. Well, what do you think? Like on the ESA front, what's your prediction on that? Like I, I'm starting to wrap my head around this now because I think it's the two things that I think are the most important issues right now in education are AI and ESAs, in my opinion. Like these are the most – important is the wrong word. The most destabilizing factors either for good or bad, and I'm not sure on either of them where I come out. We've we want let's not even go to yeah. Chat GPT. The ESAs, I'm like, I have this weird feeling that they're gonna be more important than charter schools. Like, like I, I think this is gonna be the most important discussion and debate and trend over the next few decades. Uh do you share that feeling? Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, partly just because they're they 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 have more potential to upend what we're used to. Yeah. Um you know. It's funny. I mean, for years, going, I don't know, 15 years, I used to say, look, uh, when we talk about school choice, uh, it's the chance if you don't like your kid's school to move your kid from school A to school B. But hell, I mean, Bernie Sanders is more ambitious than that on health care. Right. He's not saying you can go from hospital A to hospital B under single payer. He's right. saying you get to pick your caregiver. Right. And, if you, and you get to pick your specialist. ESA is basically doing the Bernie Sanders thing. It's saying... You can, if you like your kid's school, but you hate the math program, we're going to let you solve for that. Yeah. If you want, if you want to do hybrid homeschooling, which again, I mean, you know, polling, polling results change over time, but more than 60% of parents with a kid with special needs say they'd like to be able to do hybrid homeschooling, have their kid home at least one day a week. Over half of all parents say that over half of all high schoolers say they'd like to have that option. If you're talking about mechanisms, which give families the freedom if they want to, to start to reconfigure these things, that's profoundly um, more of a challenge to what we're used to than simply having new charter schools set up shop um, in the community. Yeah, and I'm warming up to the idea. I'm not fully there yet, and I need to see it in action more. And I have to sometimes separate out sometimes my feelings about some of the politicians involved and the the actual... And and there's real down... I mean, the down... You know, I mean, you know, because it is potentially... Um, much more disruptive. That means it's kind of like what you just said about ChatGPT. Um, yeah. Right. I, I, I've got a column coming out tomorrow about how ChatGPT is going to do great things or terrible things, right. depending on how schools use it. Yeah. Um, ESAs. I mean, it's not hard to imagine scenarios in which this is an awesome, wonderful tool, or in which you're reading a litany of horror stories about right. what happened with fraud and bad choices. Right. And that's that's going to be part of the reality we're going to be living with. Yeah, I think that a, a metaphor is like we did a segment on hospice care a, a couple of weeks ago, and it's this deregulated environment where 
a lot of money flooded the system, a lot of private actors. And, you know, we got a listener who runs a hospice care company who phoned in and was like, hey, there's some great things happening in Idaho and we don't want to be painted with the same brush as Arizona and California. And then you look at Arizona and California, there's some really horrific things happening in some of those places. And, you know, it makes you, it just makes your head spin. And I think about the politics of this is just going to be incredibly interesting and difficult. And like you said, it's just really hard to argue with parents who want to exercise choice, but it's also really hard to to support something that upends existing institutions. And I think I was thinking about the metaphor of, well, as a progressives, how do you talk to progressives about this stuff? And I was thinking, well, we support Section 8. It's like a non-starter to be against Section 8 vouchers in housing. So we support it in housing using vouchers in that case. We support Medicare and Medicaid, where you can take your public dollars outside of public institutions. So you support it there. And so then you move down the list and you're like, well, then what makes education different? And you can make the arguments. You could say, hey, it's like our our collective experience, like bringing people together. Like it's really important for the civic glue of our nation to have people rub elbows with each other. It's important for socialization. There's also, you could like the, the, the existing institutional argument is also could be persuasive to say, look, like if we were restarting the system, maybe we would start it differently. But right mm -hmm. now we've got a lot of investment in the system as it works. These are all arguments that I think people yeah. can and should make in good faith. Yeah. I, I just, as somebody who is trying to do right by kids and fashion a effective political coalition for this and bullish on ESAs becoming a dominant dominant mode of uh, educational choice in this country and not like 30,000 in Arizona, but, you know, millions in Arizona yeah. and places. Well, like I this. think this is, and what, you know, to bring it back kind of full circle to where we started, one way to think about the appeal of ESAs is as a legacy of all that stuff that went down. There's a lot of, I think, exasperation with testing, with accountability, things that used to have a lot of purchase. There's a lot of skepticism about the goal of sending all kids to college. There's a hunger for career and technical ed. There's right. things that schools aren't very good at. And I think there's a real doubt that schools know how to get a lot better. And what, you know, the bulwark in some sense uh, of the argument against uh, choice, the talk about privatization and disruption, um, it used to be particularly targeted at those suburban and rural families for whom schools are an anchor of their community, Friday night lights. Right. And this is where you get to know your neighbors. And I think one of the things that happened is between the frustration over the last 10, 15 years with Common Core, uh, with some of these other fights, uh, some of this value stuff and the race-related stuff that we just talked about, and certainly with kind of the broken covenant with schools during COVID, uh, is a lot of that, that, that residual goodwill that had been built up over generations, um, you don't find in the same way right. um, among suburban and rural communities. And so what that's done is it's opened the door for folks who are saying, hey, don't yeah. you want to have other options? And that has created a practical coalition between those families and families who are ill-served in the urban core. And that coalition is just fundamentally new from anything we have seen play out over the last 40 years. Yeah, and I would add to that is sort of anti-institutional populism, which has grown mm -hmm. over the past 20 to 30 years. And in, in a way, I, I think of lost debate as in many ways like an anti-populist institution, although I'd like, I, it's, we have this weird combination where nobody, there's no like litmus test ideologically to be a part of this network, but I would say that, I, I, as speaking for myself who runs it, 
I'm like anti-populist in the sense of like, I don't trust this sort of, uh, you know, alternative media defund the FBI type of stuff and that Fauci needs to go to jail type of stuff. And at the same time, I, I'm a progressive, I'm a libertarian leaning progressive where I tend to like to put the solutions as close to the people as possible. And sometimes those things are at odds. I think ESA being an example is like, I like good institutions like schools. I really want them to work. I like tradition. I like ritual. I like community and civic glue, but I also like putting things in the hands of people to and empowering people. And this is one of those issues where those two things are just going straight head to head with each other. And I'm not sure where I'm going to come out. But Rick, this was wonderful. This is like really the first time we've had a, an extensive conversation. I want to welcome you back on any time. I think sure. there, there's ways that we can continue this conversation. And I think this is the spirit of this whole organization is bringing people together Um who I don't know if we're necessarily on different sides ideologically, but we certainly have friends probably who are very different from each other ideologically. And so I just want to thank you for this piece. I want to encourage our audience to listen to it. Is there anything else you want to plug right now? One of your 17,000 books that you've written over the years? Uh, sure. I got a book coming out uh, in May with Harvard Ed Press called uh, The Great School Rethink, which is given that we're in this uh, punctuated equilibrium that has been brought by, uh, been brought by the pandemic, uh, how do we think differently? about so many of these dimensions we just talked about, uh, the relationship of parents and schools, how we think about choice, how school use, how schools use time and the tools at their disposal. And uh, yeah, folks have enjoyed this conversation. I think they might find it an interesting book. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. Well, that's it for this week's episode. A big shout out to Rick Hess for an illuminating conversation. You could follow him on Twitter at Rick Hess 99. Regressives is produced for Lost Debate by me and Joe Engelbrecht. You can subscribe to The Lost Debate and The Regressives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your shows. That's it for this week. I'm Robbie Gupta, and we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming on Thursday. See you next time.